The Holy Gospel according to John, the 14th chapter. Jesus answered Judas, not Iscariot, Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does, and does, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but it is from the Father who sent me. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe. The Gospel of the Lord. Y'all can be seated. So I, I remember uh, I was 17 years old. I was a junior in high school. And uh, we went to my great-grandfather's funeral. And uh, my great-grandfather is, is one of my heroes because uh, he was just a smart aleck. And I, I sort of get my sense of humor from him. He's the one who said, well... The doctor told me if I didn't quit eating so much red meat and smoking so many cigars and drinking so much whiskey, I wouldn't live another five years. Well, what happened, gross papa? He was German, Otto Saunders, good guy. And he said, what do you mean what happened? He died, the doctor, you know. And so there, we, were at his, we were at his memorial service to just kind of celebrate who he was. And it, it, being 97, you know, he might have actually gotten a couple more years if he hadn't done all those things, but what's the point? And so I was standing outside, and it was the first time I'd actually had anybody in my family that I knew die. So I was, I was kind of struggling with it a little bit. My grandfather, who was uh, the son-in-law, not the son, walked up and said to me, Eric, you and I are the black sheep of this family, and one of these days, we're going to have to sit down and have a conversation about it. And it was 1993, and so this was still a time when people smoked just about everywhere, and he had a cigarette in one hand and his oxygen mask in the other, right? We, we all know these people. And this was a conversation that I really desperately wanted to have. Because first of all, I, I, I didn't cause trouble. I caused mischief. You know, I... I, and usually I, I, I wasn't doing much that was bad, but whatever was happening, I was the instigator. And so I kind of got where he was coming from. But I really wanted to know, you know, what this conversation was going to be. And it was just 29 days later that we were back in Okeechobee, Florida, and uh, we were at his funeral. It was a, it was a conversation that I just, I just never did get to have. And it was, it was one of the first times that I really realized how important it is not just to say hello, because we, we do, we talk a lot about how to make a good first impression. We talk a lot of, you know, how to win friends and influence people, or, or one of my favorite book titles is How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. You know, we, we talk a lot about how to, how to make these impressions and relationships that give people a good first taste of who you are. One of the things we don't value as well or as much is how to say goodbye, how to leave, how to make an exit, 
And let's face it, most of the time in, in our lives, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about ways to make a bad exit. You know, we see in TV shows and sometimes church, not this church, but other churches down in Columbia, people who only leave a church when they get so angry they can't stand it anymore, right? People who, who are just waiting on that, on that straw that breaks the camel's back, that finally lets them storm out in self-righteous indignation because it feels a lot better than just kind of walking out of the room because really what those exits are about is more our own pain, our own hurt, than it is actually figuring out how to say goodbye, right? And if we're hurt, then let's face it, part of human nature is letting other people hurt too. We, we see a lot of examples of, of bad exits, but I, I think leaving well is one of the most important things that we can do. Because it's true, we may be leaving someplace because we're frustrated. You know, and, and all our important relationships, none of them end well. They, you know, marriage, the goal is to end in death. Great. You know, we, we spend every day getting a little bit closer to heartbreak. Um, marriages end in divorce. You know, and it ends in pain. You know, we... We all fear the time when we lose a friend, either because they, they die or they move away, or because we say something or they something that hurt, say something that hurts us. And there are a lot of times when leaving badly is just the way life happens. But sometimes when you know you're going, when you, when you know your time is getting short, you want to make sure that you say goodbye in the right way, that you can leave a good last impression. That is what John chapters about 13 through 16 are really about. Jesus knows that he's leaving. Jesus knows that his time is short. Jesus knows that the relationship that he's had with the disciples for these last, and depending on which gospel it is, one year or three years, is going to end and it's not going to be the same. And they're going to have to go from being the students to being the pillars of the church. And so far, the, the, start, the stunning accomplishments of the disciples in the gospels have been arguing about who's the greatest, have been failing to cast out demons and heal some of the diseases, and have been generally making bad decisions. And so Jesus recognizes that it's probably really important for him to make very clear what it means to be the church together because they don't quite get it yet. They're not the disciples that we hear about in Acts, the ones who go and preach and teach and go far and wide, who are brave to stand up in the face of everybody who might throw something at them. They are still the scared people who are the students, who have no idea how they can live up to what Jesus has as expectations for them. And so Jesus talks to them about what it means to be people who follow God's law, about what it means to be people who follow him, about what it means to be a part of this family. We talked about that a little bit during the children's sermon, right? We, we talked about the fact that our relationship in the church is the relationship of a family. And like all families, we have the good times that we celebrate. You know, the times where we have the, the potluck dinners, the times where we get together and do service, the times when we get together and enjoy each other's company. Like all families, we fuss and fight and we argue and we need to forgive each other and love each other, even though people have hurt our feelings. Like all families, we live in a place that has expectations of us. And like all families, we, we get our chief values through what we do around a table, right? Through the body and blood of Jesus, we learn what it means to be part of the family of God, that we're people who make sacrifice for each other, 
We're people who learn to love like Jesus. Jesus who gives us everything. Jesus who gives up his life. Jesus who spends his time and energy teaching and preaching and talking about what it means to be a part of God's family. And not only teaching and preaching and talking about it, but going into places even where they don't like him, going into places where he doesn't know anybody, going into places where it's uncomfortable to show people what it means to be a part of the family of God that wherever we are, we carry that love with us and we shine that love out of us into the community. Whether it's people who look like good God-fearing Christians or whether it's people who look like they're not from around here like Syrophoenician women or people who we know belong to clubs or organizations or, or groups of people who we don't normally associate with like Samaritan women at the Well of Jacob, whether it looks like people who we know are sinners like the woman who was caught in adultery, whether it's people who collect our taxes, and let's face it, that's not any more popular in modern America than it was in first century Palestine, wherever we are, we're called to live into those values of the family of God by sharing the love and the light and the promise that we are people who by loving God are learning to love who God loves. And who's God love? Everybody. This is hard stuff. It's a, it's a hard task. It's a hard message. It's not anything that's going to be easy. Because let's face it, a lot of people in our lives spend a lot of time trying to prove to us that they're not very lovable. And it's easy to love the cute, cuddly baby. It's easy to love grandma. It's hard to love somebody who's just hurt our feelings. It's hard to love somebody who disagrees with us so much that we don't know how to find any common ground. You know, it's, it's hard to love somebody who, who seems to spend all their time trying to be contrary to whatever it is we think. And probably my, my hardest place is when I'm in traffic because everybody else is an idiot. I don't know if y'all are the same way. But, but isn't that the call? And trying to live this call out, you know, we, we find that not only is it hard, but sometimes it's just downright impossible. Because if you have a personality like mine, you know, you, you spend a lot of time wondering if you just said things that really upset people around you because I don't have internal dialogue. If I think it, I say it. It's, it's difficult, and sometimes, especially when we realize that maybe I'm the one who's not acting very lovable. Because sometimes living in a relationship with other people means saying we're sorry, right? Whoever said love means never having to say you're sorry was wrong. And... The other part of being a part of the family of God that I think is so important is that, uh, like everybody else, I, sp I know I spend a lot of my time feeling like uh, there's, there's a peace, there's a wholeness, there's a hope that I'm looking for that I can never quite get. There's a, there's a modern poet who some of y'all might be familiar with who wrote a, uh, a very well-known poem that goes, I can't get no satisfaction I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try, and this gets deep, and I try and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction, right? And don't, we spend a lot of our lives feeling that way, looking for that thing that's finally going to make us feel whole, looking for that thing that's finally going to make us feel complete, looking for that thing that finally is going to make us feel like we know what's going on. And, you know, I told you all earlier about my definition of young adult being that you don't quite know how to do all the things that you're expected to do 
because all of a sudden you have all the responsibility but about five minutes more experience. But isn't it the truth that most of us spend most of our lives just hoping that we don't say something dumb? Hoping that nobody finds out that we really don't know what's going on? Pretending that, that we know a lot of things that we really just kind of have a, have a notion about, but hoping that we can do it well enough that people aren't going to notice that we're just kind of trying to figure our way out through it too? You know, there's that, there's that deep discomfort that comes from dealing with a world that isn't hostile, but really just doesn't care about us. And so Jesus says something to his disciples as he leaves that says something about one of the deepest values that we have as the church. Peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And how does the world give? The world gives expecting that it, it's going to get something back, right? The, the we're, we're in a transactional relationship with the world. If I give you $5, you give me coffee. Next year it'll be 6 probably. But, you know, if I, if I give you this amount of time, then you give me this amount per hour. It's all transactional. Even sometimes friendships can be like that. You know, we, we, we all have people in our lives who we've been friends with not necessarily because we want the things that they can give us, but certainly it doesn't help if I don't have a car that my friend has a car, right? Certainly it, it doesn't hurt if, if they've got a pool table and I'd like to play pool. Certainly it doesn't hurt if uh, they're the ones who I can go to and unload all my problems on, even though I don't necessarily always do a good job of letting them unload their problems on me. You know, we're all human and we all have the same stuff that we deal with. The, the world gives in a selfish, expectational kind of way. God gives in a way that's sacrificial. God gives in a way that costs God everything. There is nothing that God holds back from us. There is nothing that God will not do for us to the point where God saw that the old bargaining way of dealing with us wasn't working. You know, he tried the first covenant, which was don't eat the fruit. What's the first thing we did? We ate the fruit. So God said, all right, let's try this again. Here's 10 things that normal people just typically try not to do anyway. Don't do these 10 things and everything's okay. What did we do? All 10 things. And, and you'd think even, even the first one, you know, you shall have no other gods before me would be an easy one, right? Because sometimes I don't care who you are. There's been somebody you've wanted to kill. There's been somebody who has stuff that you would like to have. There's been, been, been something you've stolen. There's been somebody who's not your husband or wife that you've at least seen and thought about, right? These are normal human things, but we live in community and don't do them. So at the very least, it shouldn't be hard to have other gods, right? So what's the first thing that we did? Moses was up on the mountain after you know, getting the Ten Commandments, and the Israelites were down at the base of the mountain melting down their jewelry in order to have a festival to worship a fertility god because we're out of slavery and nothing says party like a fertility god. And so at the very time when they were supposed to be celebrating the god who had literally just delivered them out of slavery, already they had built an idol. And that's, that's just kind of the way our love is. Our love 
is conditional. Our love is fleeting. Our love is often unfaithful, even though we try. And so when we hear Jesus talk about a peace given in the way that the world does not give, what I hear is Jesus saying that the peace I give you is a peace that you did not earn. The peace that I give you is a peace that you cannot merit. The peace that I give you is something that I give you for free, and that might be the most offensive thing about the gospel, that the love that God gives us is not a love that we can earn. The love that God gives us is something that we get for free. And when Jesus talks about peace, peace is something that isn't just the absence of some conflict. The peace that Jesus is talking about is what we receive in the presence of God, a wholeness a completeness, a sense that finally there's somebody who gets me, somebody who knows me, somebody who knows the very cells that make me up and really understands me in a way that even I don't understand myself. The peace that comes from knowing deep in your bones that here is one who will not abandon me. Here is one who can see my darkest places where I am unlovable who can see those things within me that I think can never have life again, who sees my doubt, who sees my shame, who sees my pain, who sees my brokenness and loves me there. Peace that comes from knowing that in God's family, water is thicker than blood because God will never abandon us. The peace that comes from the wholeness that we find only in the fulfillment of that hope that we all have, that eventually we'll find somebody who will understand us because everybody else disappoints us. These are our family values. Easy, right? We, we live in a family where the head of our family understands who we are, that we're going to be people who fuss and fight, we're going to be people who, who don't always do the right thing. We're going to do, be people who, who build idols to other gods. Now, most of them aren't as interesting as fertility gods, but there's money. And there's my stuff. And I like money and I like my stuff. You know, there's, there's the idol of vocation. You know, how often when somebody asks you about when we meet people, what's one of the first questions we ask you? What, what do you do? You know, how do you define yourself? We often build an idol to the things that we do because productivity is another idol that we have in America, right? We, we have a lot of idols that we need to tear down. Our family values tell us that God understands this. When, when we think about our lives and we think about what we do when we go out of here, what it means to be a part of this family, re- remember these couple things, that being a part of the family of God means doing the things that God commands us to do. Not because God is just waiting to burn us when we mess up, but because the God who loves us and declares peace in our lives has demonstrated what it means to do this by giving us everything and holding nothing back. God has everything to lose in this relationship and gives it all freely. How can we live our lives in a way that make us courageous enough to give everything away? To 
really dig into what God is calling us to do and what God is calling us to be and how God is calling us to treat the people around us, how God is calling us to exist in this world. How is it that we can be courageous enough to, to not just pray for daily bread, but trust that God really will provide it? What would it be like to live our lives in a way that isn't just God, we, we hope someday your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth like it is in heaven. But to live our lives like we believe every word that God's kingdom is being made perfect among us here and now. And that we have been called to be the stewards of the things that God is creating and the people who God loves. How this week when you go out from this place, will you be a member of God's family? And how will other people know by looking at the way we live our lives? Amen.